Southern Skies. Online Media. and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 61 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Well, dear listeners, sitting here for the last time as a 30-something, I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always is someone who's long since passed the 40 milestone. It's the aged Grant McCarran. Boy, that makes me feel better saying that, mate. Thanks, Junior Berger. <laughs> I don't feel like it, mate. Yes, dear <laughs> listeners, I am. by the time you hear me after this episode, I'll be... <laughs> 40. Oh, come on, mate. You don't look a day over 90. Oh, sorry. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh, well, we're trying not to contemplate that, but uh, sitting here as we record this, I'm one week away from turning 40, so I'm going to try and enjoy this last week of 30-somethingness. Yeah, make the most of it while it counts, but, mate, age is just a number, and remember, as Dave says on uh, Uncontrolled Airspace, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan, so get out there and fly some more, mate. Uh, Absolutely. In fact, I'm planning on that. I'm going up in a one seventy next week so I'm looking forward to that awesome yeah you know we're heading down to Marabon with my good friend Laurie Burns and uh, we're going to go out and you know continue my never ending attempt to get current again oh come on mate you'll do it piece of cake absolutely mate yeah anyway well uh, look uh, Grant we've had a a busy week since uh, the last time we've actually even put some more video footage out so we want to apologise in advance for that well actually you know it it does show me yeah sorry folks you can see me in there yeah, yeah, we've actually been out to Point Cook, of course, uh, on the 31st of March was the uh, the 90th anniversary uh, of the Royal Australian Air Force, and there's been lots of uh, festivities going on uh, for this year so far uh, with regard to that, and uh, those will continue throughout the year, I'm sure. But uh, Grant, they had a, uh, an air pilgrimage that set out from Tamora, uh, 60 aircraft in all, and uh, headed down, they stopped at Tokemall, uh, and then went down to Ballarat, and then on to Point Cook. So uh, we thought, well, you know, we've got the morning free, let's head out there with the camera gear and the recording stuff, and uh, yeah, we, we got a, a few good interviews so they're going to feature in the first block of this show that's right it was a great day down at point cook lots of incredible aircraft some amazing people yeah we didn't have time to see them all but we did manage to get some good interviews yeah so we've got a package of five here mate we're going to uh, kick it off by talking to uh, air commodore rod luke he's going to tell us a bit of the history of uh, of point cook and uh, a bit about uh, what they're doing there and some interesting uh, f- uh, history of his own about uh, how he flew canberra bombers really interesting stuff uh, we're going to talk to steve deeth from tamora also doug hamilton who flew down the spitfire Mark 8, an immaculate machine, and uh, Grant, I'll tell you, that's the closest I've ever gotten to that aircraft, and you know, it's just immaculate. Uh, it's a great aircraft. I've uh, hung out with that a few times uh, over the last, ooh, Gee, it must have been almost 10 years now, and uh, yeah, it's great to see it down again and uh, also to get a little closer to the Hudson than I've been before, and there was a lot of amazing aircraft out there, and it was great to see Tamora bringing down a few of their posse. Yeah, now also there were a, uh, an interesting uh, collection of Yaks turned up, Yak-52s predominantly, and some Nanchangs, I think, too, Grant, similar sort of aircraft. I uh, don't think there were any Nanchangs there, mate. I think they were all Yaks. The, the formation was all Yak. There was nine Yaks on site. Uh, the first one arrived with Cole. 
and uh, then eight yaks came in in formation, seven yak 52s and one yak 18, I believe it was, which is the four-seater. And uh, they were flown in by a bunch of predominantly airline pilots, I think, uh, called the Russian Roulette, which uh, I'd not heard of before, but uh, they're from a, a, uh, an outfit up in uh, New South Wales, I think, called Red Star Aviation. And, uh, yeah, they had a lot of fun. So uh, we interviewed uh, very briefly uh, Egon Ma or, uh, under his pseudonym. <laughs> I didn't actually catch it, but uh, maybe uh, the listeners can see if they catch it when they listen to the interview. Dark Omelette. And uh, and, uh, tell you what, here's me worrying about turning 40. We actually interviewed Cole Griffin, Grant. He's 91. Mate, I'll be happy to be that active when I'm 80. Yeah, I'll tell you what, so uh, that's quite an entertaining interview and that'll be the last one in this block. So uh, Grant will kick it off and uh, coming out from that, we'll be talking to Kenny Love from tomorrow. Ben Morgan from aviationadvertiser.com.au, our wonderful sponsor, is going to uh, have a bit of a yarn to us about uh, a restoration of a Mackie 326H, formerly a uh, RAF aircraft, of course. Then after that, we've got some uh, more content from Avalon, this time looking at Warbirds. Uh, Shoutouts as well. So Grant, another packed episode. Let's kick it off. On with the show. Hey Commodore Rod Luke, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you for having me. Mate, uh, thank you for allowing us on the tarmac here at Point Cook, uh, surrounded by a number of these aircraft that are involved in the RAAF's Air Pilgrimage. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Air Pilgrimage? Yeah, we've had uh, the to celebrate the Air Force's 90th birthday, which in fact is today, Thursday the 31st of March. And we've organised a pilgrimage of vintage and warbird aeroplanes. They've flown from Tamora through Tokenwall, Ballarat to arrive here this morning on the day of our birthday. And it's a very historic point here because this Point Cook is the birthplace of the RAF, isn't it? Point Cook's a very special place to uh, to all of us. It is the birthplace. It's the spiritual home. Uh, the Australian Flying Corps was formed here back yep. in 1913 and then at the Royal Australian Air Force was the set is the second oldest independent air force in the world, formed here in 1921. And uh, we're standing on the oldest continually operated military airfield in the world. In the world? I knew it was definitely in Australia, but I didn't realise it was the oldest in the world. world. Continually operated military airfield. That's excellent. Now, back in 1921, we received a number of uh, surplus World War I aircraft from the uh, from the Royal Air Force. And uh, how did we progress from there? Well, the aircraft, the fighter of the day was the SE-5A, and they were gifted to us from the Royal Air Force for our good work in the First World War. And uh, we've actually uh, got pictures of that. We've used a, a beautiful portrait of two SE-5As flying over Point Cook as our central theme for this event. Excellent. And so uh, that's the way we started. And when you look at the march in technology through to 90 years later to be operating Super Hornets and C-17s, it's just an amazing thing. The Air Force always being on the forefront of technology and stuff, and if we even think back to the time when the the inception of the RAAF, even to see those aircraft flying around at the time when there wouldn't have been commercial airline service or even the thought of such a thing must have been quite a thing for the people of the day. Well, the military has been the technology driver. I guess outside the space program, the military is the great technology driver. And uh, the aircraft I flew operation, the Canberra bomber, when it came into service back in 49, the early 50s, uh, it was pretty much like the F-111. It just uh, blew everybody away in terms of its technology and its performance and what it could do. Yep. For our American listeners, the uh, Canberra bomber was um, built in the US as the Martin B-57. I know a few of the folks who listen to us over in the States have a particular love for that aircraft. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about flying the Canberra, how that was for you? I was fortunate to fly the Canberra uh, back in the early 80s. It was towards the end of the life of the Canberra in Air Force service. And in those days, we had the F-11s in service doing the bombing, and we flew Canberras doing photo survey work, taking pictures to make maps. And we used to tow a banner 
that Mirage is shot at, <laughs> and uh, and we acted <laughs> as work. and we we flew in a lot of the air defence exercises as a as a, a bogey bomber. Okay. Um, the Canberra even then was just an unbelievable aeroplane. Okay. Uh, we used to cruise at uh, forty eight thousand feet if we we're going any distance, wow. and we could sit up there for six or seven hours. Uh, and even uh, when I was flying them in the early 80s, quite often have a conversation with the airline drivers <laughs> and uh, we'd report in at flight level 450 on climb and they'd, they'd say, uh, they'd say, who on earth's that? And one of the best responses I heard was from one of the NAVs. The airline pilot said, who on earth's that? And the NAV came back without a flash and said, only the shadow knows. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Now, how did you get to the Canberra? What, uh, you came in, did you come straight into pilot and go through standard pilot training? or I, I was probably a little bit unique. I, I'm actually an engineering officer in the Air Force, and okay. uh, but I flew as well. In those days, we had people that lived in both camps okay. and it was all about uh, providing real experience back to the engineering field when we had a huge engineering yep. operation in the Air Force and so I was fortunate enough to do my flying on the Canberra uh, which I've had a passion for ever since because they're just, uh, they're just an amazing aeroplane. So from uh, from after the flying the Canberra, uh, where'd you go from there? Off to a desk? and uh, Believe it or not I ended up here not long after that as the senior engineering officer at the flying training school where I, I owned 37 CT4 <laughs> air trainers and Quite amazingly, there was a test flight to be done every morning, first thing. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and it was a very pleasant job combining both the skills. But Now, one thing about a career in the Air Force, even today, is that uh, you can spend a lot of years, um, and I, I really had about 10 major different works and types of employment, uh, project managing, uh, directing huge projects, personnel managing, uh, running maintenance operations, yep. doing engineering work, flying. Uh, it's just an amazing, uh, you know, being involved in staff college and training. I ended up as the commander of training for Air Force at one stage. Excellent. And uh, it's, it's, that's one of the great things that you can serve a whole career and yet you look back and you, it's really a snippet of a whole lot of very different roles. Here at Point Cook they used to do a lot of officer training I believe and initial flight training now we know that's done now by British Aerospace uh, and I think the initial uh, flight training schools over in Pierce these days so what is the actual role that the Point Cook Air Force Base plays these days? Point Cook now is really the home to the RAF Museum uh, and uh, a decision was made some years ago to retain Point Cook and it was a very good decision by the Governor government of the day because up till then the policy was to sell Point Cook yep. which would have been a real tragedy yep. to many of us and uh, fortunately uh, th that was turned around and so Point Cook still on its way back up okay. yeah. on its way back up but at the moment it's really the home of the museum and uh, it will it will just be there and steadily grow as time goes on. So we're just down the road from uh, from Williams at Leverton there. So Leverton's obviously the runway there is closed as well. So what do they do out there at Leverton these days? More just a supply depot. And well, Leverton's still quite an active base. There's still a lot of staff work done there. A lot of people based there. Um, we've still got a number of training schools there. But it basically, uh, in time, Leverton will be under some pressure from yeah. local uh, local encroachment of the community. And uh, so, but still a very valuable base just at the moment. I often say it's a shame, uh, you know, going past there and seeing houses being built around the runway. But on the other hand, I think I'd quite like to live there if I had the opportunity <laughs> to live on the, such a historic runway. But, uh, well, it's, it's now known as Williams Landing, which is yeah. quite, yeah. you know, uh, Sir Richard Williams was the father of the Air Force. And yeah. uh, so it's quite an appropriate name. And yeah, there's a lot of history there as well. Are we expecting any, any more aircraft to come now? We've got quite an array here of uh, quite historic aircraft as, as we look around. We've uh, probably got 
got 20 aeroplanes on the ground and probably another 40 to come. Right. And the, the older aircraft, we're launching the fastest aircraft first and then the older aircraft as they come in simply to give us plenty of spacing on arrival. Otherwise, they could all bunch up. It's far more exciting than we need. Yep. So uh, we have a lot of... Uh, Rag and tube aeroplanes, open cockpit aeroplanes yep. still to arrive. Yep. And uh, there's a windshield in the circuit right now. Absolutely. We've got eight Tiger Moths coming. And, uh, they had a big day yesterday. They are pushing into a headwind and oh, they were okay. sitting on about 50 knots ground speed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was pretty bumpy. It was a slow old push, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. in and out of rain showers. Yeah. And yeah. so they were, they were happy to arrive yesterday. Oh, Thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for mate. joining us. Steve Deeth, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Good, thank you, Grant. Excellent. Mate, uh, you flew down in the Hudson today. I did. I flew the Hudson down from Ballarat today. We yeah. had a great trip down. We had the uh, Mustang and the Spitfire sitting off our wing for a while. Uh, but it was nice. a great trip. Did, how long did they stay on your wing before they decided to come down? We came down about halfway with them on the wing and then they accelerated away into the distance. <laughs> <laughs> and we kept cruising along, but we weren't that far behind them. Okay, well, I understand the other couple of days uh, you won the toss and you were flying the Spitfire. Yes, I got to fly the Spitfire from Tamora down to Takemall and then Takemall down to Ballarat, so we had a great time. So how do you find the Hudson to fly? Hudson's really nice to fly, actually. It's a very interesting aeroplane. It's uh, got a lot of history yep. with its World War II history, and we actually had a guy on it yesterday who was an old World War II Hudson pilot. He rode on the leg from Takemall down to Ballarat with us. Nice. And it was just fantastic. We sat uh, off the wing. I was flying the Spitfire yesterday. Yep. And we sat off the wing with the Mustang on my wing, and uh, yeah, the old Hudson man sat there and looked out the window, and it all came flashing back, I think. Oh, that's great. Well, tell us some of the history of this particular aircraft. The aircraft did see service in World War II. It then was used by Adastra Aviation as a aerial survey aeroplane. And in the early 70s, Malcolm Long here in Melbourne bought it, and they started restoring it to yeah. take it back to its original World War II uh, status with the turret and bomb doors. And in the late 80s, I think, they got it all finished. And it flew for a while, and then it went to Wangaratta to the museum there. Um, they then got flying again, and Tamora's now owned it for probably nearly 10 years. Okay. So in terms of flying, what's some of the um, reference speeds on it? Uh, we use 110 knots as an approach speed. Okay. Um, in history, when you look at all the crash reports, the most, well, not the most times they crash, but a lot of the single-engine crashes were due to engine out at slow speed okay. and then they had loss of control beyond that so we work on, on our approaches 110 knots yep. until we are definitely on final to land. Um, take off, same deal, we rotate at 100 knots yep. and fly it away from there. It cruises along happily at about 165 indicated okay. um, and it burns about uh, 360 litres an hour to do that. Okay, and how, what kind of range have you got in it? That's actually got about six hours range, so okay. it can go an awful long way if you filled it up with fuel. That's a lot of fuel on board. It then. is. It's got 1,200 litres of fuel on board. And that's all on the wings? Yes, all on the wings. Okay. We've got four tanks, two on the left, two on the right. Okay. And uh, how's the cockpit? Is it a nice, roomy, ergonomic type of thing? or is it? Um, it's actually not too bad. It's a single pilot cockpit. It only has a single set of controls in it. Okay. Um, it doesn't have on the right-hand side where the... Um, would have been the navigator bomb aimer sat. Yep. Uh, there's a seat there, but there are no controls of any type for him. Okay. Uh, but we do always fly it with two people on board. Main reason being that uh, part of the emergency undercarriage extension system involves a uh, hydraulic pump behind the right-hand seat, okay. which as a pilot, you, you can't actually reach it. So it's just a whole lot easier to have someone else flying with you. Yep. And also the visibility is 
not that good out the right hand side from the left where you sit. So we find two sets or four, two sets of eyes are better than one. Yeah. Plus, do you do much CRM kind of work? You know? We do quite. We have checklists there, and we do operate it uh, very seriously. How do you go for training pilots to fly these historic aircraft? It must be uh, not a very large pool of pilots to select from. No, that's true. Um, most of the pilots that fly sort of any of these aircraft start off in the uh, tailwheel aircraft, like the Tiger Moth, the Chipmunk. Uh, they then work their way up through uh, Windjills. Um, other smaller aircraft and then eventually into Wirraway Harvard and then up into the Mustang Spitfire Kitty Hawk. Uh, in the case of the Hudson, um, I've got a little bit of flight time in uh, Beach-18s, so that's what we used as a um, precursor to the Hudson, so we all went and did a refresher course in a Beach-18. And then the uh, previous part of the aircraft uh, did the training for Doug Hamilton, Guy Burke and myself. Um, and it was probably, for him I think it would have been scary because he got to sit in the right-hand seat. He had no controls of any type, shape or form, and he trained us how to fly it. And I thought, and I did actually say to him, I said, man, your game. But he, but he obviously had decided that we had enough skill to fly it. Um, so yeah, so he basically showed us how it all worked. And we did a full conversion on the aeroplane, which was very interesting. Uh, we're very lucky the aeroplane flies very lightweight now. It obviously has no bombs, uh, no armaments in it. So it does perform very well. Now you fly a lot of the other aircraft you just mentioned. Then you've, I know you fly the Harvard, you've the Mustang, the, both Spitfires, and the P40. Um, so, how do you? What's your favourite? Do you have a particular favourite you like to fly out of that, that list? Um, I do enjoy flying them all. They're all different, yep. and it'd be pretty hard to say I have an absolute favourite. Um, the Mustang has always been my favourite since I was a little boy, mm-hmm. uh, so I certainly enjoy that. But the Spitfire is a wonderful aeroplane in the sky. The P-40 is a really nice aeroplane to fly. It's very very basic and very simple. Yep. Um, it's probably the easiest of those World War II fighters to fly. Uh, Spitfire is probably the hardest one and the Mustang settles in the middle. Uh, I'm also very lucky I own a uh, T-6, North American T-6G uh, aircraft. Um, and I really do enjoy flying that. It's a training aircraft from World War II yep. um, and it does make make you really fly properly. Yeah, I remember Alan Arthur saying that the, uh, the, the P-40 was a piece of cake after the, the T-6. Mm. Yeah, once you can fly a T-6 well, all those World War II fighters actually are quite easy to fly. Okay. So uh, what's the handling difference between a Mustang and a Spitfire from your perspective? Uh, the Mustang is a lot quicker. Um, on takeoff, it uses a lot more runway. Yeah. It's a lot quicker at the rotate and accelerates fairly well. The Spitfire is a lot lighter. Yeah. Um, it will accelerate very rapidly on a short takeoff roll and will climb much faster than the Mustang. Once it's in the air, the uh, Spitfire is very agile. Uh, the Mustang is probably not as so, but still a lovely aeroplane to fly. And again, the P-40 is sort of in between the two of those aircraft. I'm not going to make the obligatory I'm jealous as all hell that you were able to tell us this <laughs> comment. I'm just a very, very lucky person to be able to fly these aeroplanes. So how did you get to this very, very lucky position? Well, I think um, I'm an ag pilot by trade. That's what I do and have done for the last sort of 20, 28 years. Yep. Um, so as a result, I'm always flying heavy tailwheel aeroplanes, which means that you do have all the uh, tailwheel training you require to fly these type of aircraft. A lot of people today learn to fly in tricycle undercarriage aircraft with a nose wheel. Uh, when they convert to a tailwheel aircraft, they find it reasonably difficult, and it does take quite a while, but fortunately that's my job, so uh, the tailwheel time, I've quite a lot of tailwheel time as a result. Uh, I was very lucky, um, Colin Pay was a very good friend of my father's, and we spent a lot of time together you know, over the years. Um, Colin actually gave me my first uh, Harvard endorsement back in 1983. 
Um, a good friend of mine also had a Wirraway based at Albury, so we used to fly that a lot as well. And I was just fortunate enough to go on and um, people invited me to fly other aircraft and uh, I'm just very lucky to be here, <laughs> to have done it all. No, because you're, you're in with Tomorrow, you're, you're yes. flying with the Tomorrow Aviation Club. There yes. is, it's, it's, that's the phrase for it, there's the Aviation Club that owns yeah, the aircraft? Tomorrow Aviation, Tomorrow Aviation Museum owns the aircraft. That's right. Yep. And then there's the Aviation, but then there's the, the Pilots Club. Yeah, to, uh, the Tomorrow Aviation Historic. I can't think of the full term of it, <laughs> but basically they operate uh, the pilots, yeah, yeah. they operate the aircraft for the museum. Now, um, I understand you've also done a fair bit of ferry flying. In fact, uh, one time uh, I was in Albury, but you were away taking a, um, an aircraft to Nepal at the time, I believe. Yes, I uh, ferry a lot of aircraft for Pacific Aerospace in New Zealand. Yep. They build an XL750, which is a 10-seat utility aircraft, PT6 powered. Yep. And I do a lot of their fairing around the world, basically to Europe. Uh, we did three to Nepal last year and the year before. Uh, I've got a couple to go up to Indonesia in the next month or so. And I also ferry um, a lot of the new air tractors uh, out of Texas back yep. to Australia when they uh, when people purchase them. So you're doing that just yourself and a whole lot of fuel? Uh, that's it, yeah. Myself yep. and a whole lot of fuel. They're usually the air tractors are single seat, sometimes yep. two seat aircraft. So yeah, I'm quite happy to sit there and read the book and cruise along. I was going to say, what do you do when you're in the middle of nowhere on your uh, own in a single engine aircraft? Well, I read books. I read a lot of books, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine. And uh, just lately I've started to listen to music because I've worked out that my little telephone will hold music on it. So yeah. I'm getting on top of that. Okay. Excellent. We could recommend a few good aviation shows you could listen to, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and not just ours. Oh, okay. Really that's, what I thought we're, that's what we're leading to. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We'll, 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 we'll give you a rest on that one. <laughs> no, there's a lot of really good shows out there you can listen to. Yeah. Okay. Well, Steve, this uh, this uh, Navy historic Huey here is giving us a hard time with the sound, so we'll sign up there. But uh, tomorrow, Aviation Museum, we can see you flying there most weekends or most flying weekends. Yeah, they fly for two every second Saturday of the month. Right. The first and third Saturday of the month they fly. Okay. Look up their website and they'll show you what's flying and when. Absolutely. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. Doug Hamilton, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. How are you going, mate? Going well. Excellent. Now, Doug, we're standing here next to the uh, Spitfire. You got to fly that today? I did. Uh, I was lucky. I, uh, I drew the Spit today. That was good. Cool. Otherwise, you were flying the Hudson the last yeah. few days. Yeah, been flying the Hudson, the Spit uh, today. Okay. It's pretty tough business, isn't it? <laughs> it's a hard life. So you're, you're doing a lot of flying for tomorrow these days? Yeah, yeah, I am, and thoroughly enjoying that. That's, yep. uh, it's pretty special. Your other aircraft that I've seen you with is uh, you've got a Harvard and you've got a Lockheed 12. That's correct, yeah, we had them at Avalon a few That's weeks correct. ago, yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, I get to play with lots of good things. So uh, how long have you been flying the uh, Spitfire? Uh, probably about four years on okay. and off, whenever they got the, the second Spitfire tomorrow, okay. they uh, got yeah, me up to speed going. in the Spit. Because this is the Mark 8 and the other one's a Mark 16? Mark 16, correct, okay. yeah. And uh, how do they handle? Um, well, they're, they're like a Spitfire, very, very awkwardly on the ground, but just the most, the most gorgeous thing when you get it airborne. You, you point it where you want it to go and it just does it for you. Okay. Much of a difference between the 8 and the 16? Not a lot, no. No, okay. very similar. In fact, you know, about the only uh, major difference is the tail wheel doesn't go up on the 16. Okay. Mm. Tell us about some of the challenges in learning to fly uh, a classic aircraft like this was obviously such high performance. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'd flown uh, T-28s and Harvards and Wirraways and things like that. Uh, and to get into the Spitfire is quite daunting. I mean, there's the history of it, the rarity of it, the value of it, in dollar terms and historically. Um, 
it's uh, you know I, I still remember opening the throttle gently for the first time and uh, yeah it, it just launches like nothing I'd flown before at that stage. How many inches of manifold pressure do you uh, put into it when you open it up? We hear it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah look we uh, being English it runs on uh, PSI boost um, so we uh, on takeoff you very gently, you certainly don't get it in too quickly, but we, we run up to about plus 12 boost, which I, I think I don't quite remember, it's around 60 inches. 60 inches. <laughs> a bit more than a Cessna 182, for instance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you you know, you can't bring that in too quickly or uh, you just can't can't control it with rudder and it, uh, you've got right aileron in, but until you've got some forward motion, that's having no effect yeah. other than making you feel like you're trying to do something yeah. about the torque. Yeah, so it'd be a significant torque effect to, to have to counter. Oh, very much so, yeah. You, that's why you bring the power in very very gently and once once you start getting airspeed you can get into the power a bit more and uh, once it starts tiptoeing you just give this another squeeze of power and it's flying. Now you've also flown the Mustang? Haven't flown the Mustang, okay. I've flown one from the back seat airborne but flown the P40 a fair bit. Um, it's it's a delightful aeroplane to fly. Um, tracks it, it's much easier to operate on and off the ground. Wider track hasn't it? A wider track and it's just more stable. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, lovely aeroplane to fly as well. Yeah, Alan Arthur was telling me oh, ages back when we were in Albury that time, he was saying that it was a gentleman's aircraft. He reckoned the uh, if you could, it should be the other way around. You should learn on the P40 and to work up to the Harvard. That, that's right. It, uh, but still, the P40, if you got into the power too quickly, it'd bring you unstuck. But yeah, it's 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 easier to put on and off the ground than the Spirit. The, the other aircraft here is the Hudson. That's the other one you've been flying with tomorrow. Um, how do you how do you find that's big twin engine bomber transport? What's what's your yeah. To fly. It's it's actually a gorgeous old aeroplane to fly. I've done a fair bit of time in it now. It's uh, you know it's it's the aeroplane at tomorrow that the tow bars go in and you know <laughs> whenever anything else goes somewhere the Hudson goes as ground support. That's nice. Uh, so I've become very comfortable in the Hudson and it, and it is truly a lovely aeroplane you know to fly and it's it's not too bad to put on and off the ground. It's got a very weird braking system, no tow brakes and a big handle you pull out. Um, is but that, other than that, it's quite conventional and uh, just a sweet aeroplane. Is that similar to the 12? Like no, the 12's, lock, got, 12's got tow brakes. Okay. But other than that, uh, other than the brakes, a very similar aeroplane to fly. If you were working someone up for the Hudson now, we'd... Uh, we build them up in my 12 and okay. then just convert into that. I was uh, helping out with uh, Laurie's Lockheed 10 ages ago when he was putting that one together, the N30s, and uh, the guys were at, the, at Bankstown and there was the air show there and a Neptune was in and a, I think there was a Hudson there, but they were basically, I remember the guys were showing me the inside of the wheel well of the 10 and the inside of the wheel well of the Neptune and the others, they all look the same, just bigger. That, that's right, they just scaled up versions. Yeah. Well, the, ten, the 10 and the 12 are very similar aeroplanes. Um, yeah, 12 looks a little more racy, a little narrower. Yeah, it's a bit smaller aeroplane actually, even though it's a later one, a little bit quicker. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a later model. So it was the business jet of its time, wasn't it? It, it was, yeah, all the flash blokes had them. <laughs> a very important question, Doug. You've got so many aircraft coming on this uh, pilgrimage around Australia. How does the pecking order go for who flies what? We believe there was a bit of a uh, drawing of straws or something today. Oh, well, we uh, we we toss a coin between Spitfires and uh, and Hudsons, uh, but that's just an in-house thing. Um, but, yeah, and, and as far as, uh, you know, launching times, they launch the fastest first, and that way we are not got aeroplanes overtaking all the way along. So 
with the, with these aeroplanes, we were pretty much first off the blocks each day. Yeah, I noticed that we were just driving in, going, "Hey, I hope we're here before," it, and there you were. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, today was a pretty yourself, yeah. pretty quick trip. It was only 50 or 60 miles, so uh, that yeah. doesn't take long at 200 knots. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, and how long to drive that? Yeah, I don't want to think mm. about it. Too long. Okay, well. Dougie, thanks very much for coming on the show and thanks for having a ch uh, chat with us about these wonderful aircraft. No problem. My pleasure. Unfortunately, comrade, you lost out. Everyone, everyone volunteered you. They all yeah, took one step back. Victor Kachikov, and... Soviet Air Force, hero yeah. of the Soviet Union first class. And the real name? Uh, Egon. Egon Bauer. <laughs> cool. Egon, thank you for being nominated to have a chat with us about the Yak Attack formation. Uh, now, I believe there's eight Yaks uh, in formation here. That's right. Yeah, we've got, uh, we don't uh, generally fly together as a, as a team. We've, uh, we're just basically a bunch of uh, enthusiasts of, uh, a lot of us are ex-Air Force and uh, current uh, airline pilots. And uh, yeah, we came down for the pilgrimage and uh, hooked up together. We uh, see each other frequently. Uh, up the track and uh, yeah it was a great idea to uh, join up and uh, just come in here on mass yeah no it looked brilliant and you've got uh, uh, seven yak 52s and a yak 18 the four-seater that's correct yeah yeah, yeah the uh, the yak 18 is flown by mark willard he restored that uh, over three and a half years uh, uh, in his workshop and uh, he's produced a very nice airplane and and what kind of practice did you go through to get ready for this uh, does everyone have to have a formation ticket yes absolutely uh, everyone's required to have a formation rating to fly in formation and uh, uh, actually, I myself uh, lead the Russian Roulette's uh, Formation Airshow team, and uh, Jim, uh, one of the guys here, is uh, one of the team members there. But uh, basically, uh, we, we've been uh, flying together for the last four days, uh, transiting through the pilgrimage and uh, taking the opportunity to do a little bit of uh, formation. And uh, you know, we just sort of uh, briefed this one this morning and. Uh, and had a go. Okay, now it's not uncommon when seeing a, a civilian formation team to find that you've got a, a, a four ship, a three ship, sometimes uh, most I've seen has been five. What's it like? Do you break the formation into groups to get all eight together? Well, uh, we, we did it a little bit differently to uh, what we normally do uh, uh, with this. We, we broke this formation down to three segments. So uh, uh, we, we basically had uh, uh, the leader uh, coordinating the entire formation and uh, two of us were uh, section leaders for uh, and basically uh, take, you know, organising the spacing for our particular section. Do you basically just set a, a constant speed and fly it or, or how do you run it? Well basically the lead would set a conservative power setting which allows the, uh, the rest of the team uh, to uh, have a little bit of uh, additional power to to keep position. Okay, well, thanks, mate. Welcome, uh, welcome to Point Cook, and congratulations. Thank that you, comrade. Look really good. Really nice to see you. Da, da. Bolshoi. Das Vidanya. Das Vidanya. Cole Griffin and Warren Canning, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank, Thank you. you, Cole. You're 91, I believe, at the moment. Is that correct? Correct, 91. And you are still flying. It's a. Um, you've got what's your aircraft? I'm a licensed pilot, and I own and fly an RV6. Excellent. It's That's an American home-built. It's fast, and it's very clean. My friend here helps me to look after it. As a matter of fact, he does more work up than I do. Well, did you build it or did you buy it? No, somewhere? I bought it. Okay. I'm too old to, to build aeroplanes at 91. <laughs> I mightn't last the distance. <laughs> Not to, uh, the, the times that it takes to build an aircraft takes a while, Oh, it? it does, yeah. Yes. Okay, now, Cole, you're currently, you came in in the back seat of a Yak-52. I understand you're a part owner of this aircraft? 
Yes, I am. Okay. Yes. And uh, what aircraft, you've, you've had 70 years continuous flying experience, is that correct? So, yes, that is so. Okay. I joined the RAF in 1941 and uh, I did my training here in Australia, went to England. I flew the Mosquito for 650 hours. Uh, and when I returned from the war, without a scratch, I got by. I was one of the fortunate people. Uh, I joined Australian National Airways, the Holliman Group, yes. and which was eventually taken over by Reg Ansett. And I flew for Reg Ansett. He was an aviator and a, a great man. Yeah. Uh, and subsequently, at 60, I was retired. Okay. So I went instructing young people at Melton oh, in yeah. Victoria. Yep. And uh, I stayed there for about, I think about 11 or 12 years, uh, approximately. And uh, I then purchased an aeroplane. And uh, because I lived close to Kyneton, uh, it was a suitable place to uh, place my aeroplane. A beautiful little thing. I still own it. Warren flies it. I fly it, and it's in beautiful condition. It has a. It's very small. It's got an autopilot. It's got uh, a GPS, and uh, it flies in a lovely straight line. <laughs> Not easy to land. It's a short aeroplane. It's a bit. It's a bit hoppy. Yep. If you uh, if you don't judge the three wheels just right, but a delight to fly, and uh, in in all, <coughs> with the RAF and the airlines and the instructing and the current flying, I've achieved uh, over thirty thousand hours. That's stick hours, yep. and that amounts if you divide them to twenty by twenty four. Uh, I think you come up with three odd years. Somebody said three and a half years in a year. Well, uh, there's a gentleman in the US who's part of the Uncontrolled Airspace uh, podcast, yes. another internet radio show, yeah. and uh, his favourite tagline is, uh, go flying because life spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. <laughs> so, right, more time in Living the air. Living proof of so, that. There yeah. you go. Oh, well... Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take issue with that. <laughs> I wouldn't take issue. Oh, I. I. I have longevity on my side. My great grandfather used to fill himself up with cheap wine at uh, 89, and he he ran out of gas about 90. Well, there you go. Uh, but I, my longevity, I, I put it down to uh, uh, diet related. Uh, I'm not a fanatic, but uh, everything in moderation. Yeah. And uh, plenty of rest, plenty of sleep, plenty uh, of laughter. laughter. What yeah. sort of um, medical restrictions do they put on you with CASA and, and those sort of? Do you have issues with medicals and? Oh yes, I do. I'm under surveillance. They they uh, have asked me to uh, uh, renew my license every 12 months. Right. And uh, I make sure that I, uh, uh, being on the gold card, I've got a gold card, and that yep. means free health services. Uh, if I feel that some part of my body needs adjustment, 
Well, I, I go along and uh, spend the taxpayers' money. <laughs> and uh, the taxpayer never seems to mind. Well, uh, very few people complain. They say, good on you. Yeah. Look after your health. Definitely, we need you around for longer. You've got to show more people how to fly. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, well, this, this gentleman's showing me how to fly now. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a dabster. His father was very famous. He built a small aeroplane about that big and flew it to England and back. And uh, this was some years ago. That was the... Um, Corp T-18, Charlie it was, Mike Charlie. It was that one, Charlie Mike Charlie. I've yeah. got the book of it, I haven't read it yet. And Charlie Mike Charlie is currently in a museum in That's right. South Australia, is it? No, it used to be in the Wangaratta Museum. Okay. It's now up at Tamora. Oh, it's at Tamora. Yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. So, Warren, um, you've been flying with Cole for quite a while. Yes, many years, many yeah. years. And uh, okay. Yes, he walked into my hangar one day and uh, I was I was uh, grappling with some task and he, he, uh, he fixed it up for me. Cool. Yeah, no, they might be old aeroplanes, but my God, they sound good. Don't they just? Carl, can yeah. you tell us, particularly your time with ANSET, what sort of aircraft, you would have seen a lot of change over those years. What, what sort of aircraft did you start in and progress through to? I started in the uh, DC-3, of course. Uh, well, originally the DC-2. We had, I think we had three or four DC-2s, and then the DC-3, and then the... Bristol Freighter and particularly when I was uh, promoted to be a captain I started low line from then and I was flying midnight freighters uh, up to Sydney down to Launceston and Hobart and they were either a smelly old DC-3 or a big lumbering Bristol Freighter. Yep, they're huge aircraft those ones. Oh yes. It's often said that the Bristol uh, would would qualify for getting a bird strike from behind. <laughs> it, it was yeah. so slow, yeah. but like all aeroplanes, you tend to love them anyway. I see this one here. Yes, there is. I'm, I'm going to have a look at that yeah. later. Thanks. And then, lo and behold, I started. I've got senior, uh, uh, sufficient seniority to fly the Fokker Friendship, and a damn nice aeroplane it was. That was the original f- first release Friendship with the uh, um, Rolls-Royce Dart engine. Yes, and, yeah. yes, the Dart engine. They, they called it the Million Dollar Dog Whistle. Yes. It used to smell and make a hell of a noise, but it was a beautiful aeroplane. Oh, yeah. Beautifully made. And then I flew the Viscount. Oh, wow. Now, the Viscount is a story in itself. Yep. We lost three, and they were fatal. Yep. Uh, we had passengers on board, and uh, one of them, the one that went in at Winton in Queensland, I flew it the day before. Oh, how did you... And he, all he got was a malfunction in the, in the airplane's gearbox, and it created so much heat that it started a fire. Yep. And it burnt the wing off. Yeah. Tragedy. Reg Ansett was, he just about had a nervous breakdown. He owned quite a fleet of them and he was damn glad to get rid of them. Well, there's one at the um, at the Air Museum at Moorabbin. Yes. At the airport there. They have an old one there and, yes. and mostly assembled. 
Oh, well, the they served, they served yeah. in Europe. They did extremely well. The Canadians had uh, yeah. uh, Viscounts and the New Zealanders, we yes. did. And the RAF here, best kept Viscount. I had a look at all the Viscounts and I thought the RAF Viscount was so beautifully kept. And the TAAs were very nice too. Yep. Oh, they served their reason, they served their purpose. Uh, but anybody who flew the Viscount from Adelaide to Perth and wanted to fly it non-stop without landing, say, at Kalgoorlie, uh, they used to cut it pretty, pretty uh, risky. Yeah. You know, they would land with very little fuel. Not much reserves left. No. The Viscount wasn't the last aeroplane, no. Well, I went on to the DC-9. And then, and, the and then the 727. And then the 727 Bowie. How'd you find that? With two toilets and five girls. <laughs> it was heaven. Yeah. And a beautiful aeroplane. Yeah, I've had a lot of people uh, say they love flying the 727. Oh, the 727 was lovely. Every airline pilot we've spoken to that's got 72 experience, they all rave about it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Once yeah, you right. mastered the landings, they said they were great. Yes. Well, we had two. We had the early Mark and the, the uh, short one, and uh, then the uh, the long, long one. Long one was not as easy to land, but the technique was quite strange. You you made your descent, and near the the landing uh, area, you pulled the stick back, flared, and when you thought you were just about yeah. right to land, you ease the control column forward and that brought the the back of it up and uh, ensured a nice touchdown. Passengers loved it too. Yeah. I trained people on the uh, 727 and uh, it was my great pleasure. Uh, my pleasure. I, I recall flying it from the right hand seat for the first time bloody aeroplane seemed to go sideways initially <laughs> but uh, I got used to that yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved 727 but I loved every aeroplane yeah. every aeroplane and the 727 was your last one with ANSET yes it okay. was yes last aeroplane they put me in a bath chair and wheeled me up the oh dear oh dear <laughs> yes. that wasn't well, a water cannon salute it was, it was a uh, wheelchair salute huh? yeah I went to Perth on an overnight and uh, I was um, I was a rooster yeah. but when I I came back next morning as a passenger I came back as a, just a bundle of feathers I'd finished yeah. it had finished me yeah that was your last that was it that was my last flight and once you turn 60 yeah. chop yeah you're out that's it so you get a wheelbarrow and you go into your airline and say, fill it up with all my superannuation and all the long service leave that I haven't taken. <laughs> wheel it out. And go buy an aircraft. And you ask for a police, <laughs> for a police um, um, escort. Yes, and then you flog it off and buy an aeroplane with it. I <laughs> know, oh, life is good. Life Excellent. is great. Well, Cole, it's been a privilege to meet you and uh, really interesting to hear some of your stories, and we hope to hear many more of them in the future. 
Um, you're flying out here on the Yak again this afternoon. Where are you off to next? Steve, we're going back to uh, Warren. We're going back to Kite. We're going back to Kite. Back to Kite. Going today or, or no, tomorrow? Tomorrow, tomorrow oh, yeah. No, tomorrow we're going to have uh, enjoy a, a grand dinner tonight, aren't we? We are. Thanks for speaking to us, Thank Cole. You. Really appreciate Thank it. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation advertiser.com.au Yeah, g'day Paulie, just a minor service this time mate. I did all the routine safety checks plus tested the circuits and the diagnostics but uh, overall everything's looking pretty bang on so she's all yours. Oh that's great. Cheers buddy. As an avionics technician in the army you'll get to work on much bigger, shinier toys than a regular mechanic plus get unbeatable job security and trade apprenticeship training. Call 13901 or visit defencejobs.gov.au to find out more. Army, challenge yourself. Want to see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. Kenny Love, CEO of Tamora Aviation Museum. Welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Kenny, you've had a heck of a week uh, bringing the aircraft down, coordinating it all and uh, making it happen from the Warbirds perspective here. Uh, how do you make all that happen? Look, it's a, that's a very good question. Sometimes um, we're, we're quite amazed ourselves at the results, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, effort and work um, put in by uh, a large number of people. So it's not one particular person that's... that's um, pressing all the buttons and making all the, uh, you know, putting in all the planning. Um, you can imagine that, uh, you know, there's different components of, of getting our team uh, organized and getting our participation organized and that, you know, that's everything from, you know, how many bottles of water do we bring for our crew, uh, you know, right through to planning fuel requirements. Um, you know, we brought merchandise uh, operation down. Um, you know, you've got a sunscreen for the guys uh, through to the flight planning, you know, the, the, how much oil they need, bringing spare wheels and tires, okay. uh, chocks, tow bars, you name it. Wow. Uh, we more or less had to be self-sufficient self, uh, for um, uh, five very different aircraft types. Mm. And they were putting on quite a few hours, well, not so much hours, but quite a bit of utilisation here, lots of cycles and things like that. Yeah, look, there there is a lot of cycles that went into this, a lot of a number of hours, but also um, a number of cycles, and um, uh, you know different uh, different configurations. You know, we departed out of tomorrow very heavy heavy weight, um, particularly in the jets, and uh, once again we just departed out of here. I was watching the meteor uh, dragging its tail going out. You know, the Saber <laughs> got up and really ran. But the poor old meteor, you know, it's a very heavy weight going out of here and uh, took a lot more runway to, to get airborne than the Sabre did. So um, lots of different types of uh, cycles and operations and, and that, of course, required an enormous amount of planning. But, you know, the flight planning, uh, that, that's not my area of expertise. That was done this time by, by two of the pilots. Um, 
uh, Paul Simmons uh, did the flight planning for the jets mm-hmm. and uh, and all the um, made all the uh, the intricate decisions there and uh, Doug Hamilton stepped up and did all the flight planning and coordination of the crew uh, to move the piston engines uh, down and back so it really you know it was uh, was really well done and well executed yeah Uh, it uh, definitely looked like a professional operation watching everyone go about it but still fun everyone's everyone's pretty relaxed they're happy Uh, the guys have always got a couple of minutes to say hi to the punters as well as to people they haven't seen for a while and I think that's that's really brilliant. There's no, they're not aloof. They're doing a great job, but they're having fun while they do it. Yeah, look, it's a, it is a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I think if someone's not having fun, um, you know, being part of the operation, then uh, they're in the wrong spot. You know, if they if they don't enjoy what they're doing, you know, that it's very quick to um, for us to be able to figure that out, and they really we're not that interested in them being part of the team mm. and uh, you know we've got a, a large team of people that work together a lot of these folks volunteer their time and uh, you know we've, we've brought some volunteers with us that helped us out with promoting the museum and uh, talking to people and also you know all the pilots and flight crew their time is all volunteered as well you know and some of them uh, operate their own businesses and, and they've taken time away from their businesses and uh, you know which has a uh, you know, personal impact on their finances. Yeah. Um, you know, in order to, to to come and participate, other guys have scheduled annual leave. Yeah. You know, in order to be able to make sure they were able to uh, to come here and participate. So, all in all, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of hours that have gone into planning the whole thing, and and uh, you know, in about an hour, about an hour and ten minutes, hopefully all the airplanes will be on the ground, and then we can truly relax. <laughs> so you'll stay down here until you get the phone call to say they're down. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, now let's just chat a little bit about uh, Tomorrow Aviation Museum. Uh, we have uh, listeners uh, around the world and quite possibly in Australia who haven't heard of you. So uh, could you please uh, tell us what is the purpose of Tomorrow Aviation? Sorry, Aviation Museum. Well, the, the purpose and I guess the goal and focus of the museum is to um, restore, uh, maintain in flying condition aircraft which you know, either served with Australian forces or in conjunction with Australian forces. And that, you know, that's really the theme of it. We, we don't uh, intend to be the biggest museum. That's not our goal or our plan. And uh, we certainly uh, focus, you know, our attention on, on the aircraft themselves. So, you know, there's lots of wonderful museums that, that uh, uh, you know, specialize in different areas. But for us, uh, it's, it's about aircraft and about keeping the airplanes flying. And uh, that's that's our major focus and major thrust. Okay, now you used to do um, everyone flying kind of events every what was it six weeks or so, but you, you seem to have shifted over to doing focus on one aspect uh, like uh, forward air control or um, World War Two or things like that, and, and doing them a bit more often. Look, that's right. We branded what we call our flying weekends, and we've been doing that for. We never really treated it as an air show, although for. You know, for uh, CASA purposes, you know, they get a full uh, air display approval, the same mm-hmm. as any other air show would. But we, um, you know, we branded the Flying Weekend concept, and we started that uh, really 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it grew and grew and grew to, to be uh, quite, quite a well-known, uh, renowned event. Um, but the issue was, as the, as the days and the, and the Flying Weekends grew in complexity, you know, it, it then meant we had to, uh, you know, we couldn't service the aircraft and, and service the museum and turn the whole thing back around. We started out, we were monthly, and, you know, as the operations grew larger and more complex and the, um, uh, 
you know, the, the weekends got bigger and bigger. It meant that we, uh, we, you know, we simply couldn't keep up that pace. And what happened was we, we started to spread the weekends out, you know, and, and so we went from, uh, we said monthly, but in reality, 11, I think, was the most we ever yeah. did in a year. And, uh, you know, and then it started a slow decline. We got back to seven uh, one year, and then we put nine in the following, and then it came back to, I think, uh, seven and then five. And um, because we then had to decrease the um, number of weekends and, and, and increase the length in between, it meant that our crew, you know, a lot of our pilots weren't current, so they'd come out and fly currency flights in between. And uh, it meant that that flying that they had to do for currency, our visitors didn't benefit from seeing that at all. And, and we realized that it was, it was then quite out of balance from what our original mission was, which was to fly these airplanes as often as we could um, and, uh, and do it you know, in a way that our visitors could see it and appreciate it. And so we had a, we had a major rethink and, and um, it, it took a lot, of, uh, a lot of brain power, a lot of folks spent a lot of time thinking it through and, and we decided that the best way to get ourselves back to our roots and what we originally wanted to do was to have a major restructure of our operations and, and uh, you know it's something that every business has to do. You know, they've yeah. got to think about what their actually uh, you know, their intentions are and and uh, you know, take time to, to make sure that they're they're on on target and on focus with with what it is they're trying to do, and and so we uh, created our uh, aircraft showcase and um, and our aircraft showcase program, and, and we rolled that out last um, uh, last July, and it's uh, it means we can fly a lot more often. We're just flying on a on a smaller scale, so. You know, we fly, we advertise two or three airplanes, and we do that on the first and third Saturday of, of every month, except for uh, this weekend, because we're at Avalon Air Show. But uh, we fly on the first and third Saturday of every month. And, um, you know, it lets us showcase these aircraft in more detail rather than a big show where you get, you know, a couple of snippets of commentary and, you know, the opportunity to take one or two photos. You know, we allow people to get up very close and personal. It's a much more personal experience. Yeah. And uh, we do a couple of other interesting things. We, we uh, start the day off by showing our um, visitors into the aircraft display hangar where they can watch a, a documentary about, you know, maybe the Spitfire or, or uh, bomber operations or something along those lines or air combat tactics. So that's done in the display hangar where you're surrounded by all the, all the aircraft, which is pretty special. And then after that, uh, you know, we kick off the flying and, uh, you know, we'll chat to the pilots and do some interviews there. And uh, when that's finished, we open up the engineering hangar and invite, uh, invite our visitors in to see what's happening in the engineering hangar. Because, you know, one aspect of what we do is, is we have, we, you know, we believe we have uh, the most uh, diverse and complex uh, uh, fleet mm. uh, possibly in the universe. No and, argument there. You know, it's everything from Tiger Moss, you know, right through, in, you know, into the Sabre. And, yeah. And our guys do some amazing stuff. You know, we got a, a team of engineers that that do some uh, weird, wonderful, and magical things mm. to keep these airplanes flying. And and these guys under understand um, uh, what these airplanes are all about, and and they understand the unique uh, processes that are required, and 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 thought processes that are required in order to in order to um, keep this fleet of airplanes airworthy. And in our previous format, we didn't have the opportunity to properly showcase what these guys were doing and the skills and ex- expertise and effort that went in. And and what we're able to do now is invite the guys in the engineering hangar. And a couple of examples, you know, we 
the uh, Sabre was going through its annual inspection a few yeah. months back, and, and when it was time for aircraft showcase, the guys left the Sabre on jacks, and they and they put some barricades around it and had all our visitors come into the engineering hangar, and, and they did gear retractions on the Sabre, you know, with our nice. visitors there watching, you know, watching the gear go, going up and down, obviously at a safe distance with barricades, but, you know, nearly close enough to touch it. and. And these are the things we were na- never able to do before, and it's and it's quite fascinating. You know, we've got engines in pieces that guys can have a look at, yeah. and our visitors can have a look at, and our engineering team can show them uh, what's you know what's happening there. And it's really uh, it's really quite different, but it's a it's a very rewarding uh, experience yeah. to be able to share this with our visitors. Way more in depth than just watching them fly. Yeah, look far more in depth, and yeah. and uh, you know it's a lot it's a lot uh, less stressful. You know, and, and a lot less intense, and that means that we can um, do it more often and, and still stay nice and fresh and enthused about you know being able to put to put this on. You know, yeah. we we've got a, a great team of people there at the museum, and and um, you know, wonderful support from a, a team of volunteers. Um, you know, both made up of, of people from the local community, um, and uh, and also um, you know our pilots. Uh, you know, very highly skilled and specialized. Um, uh, people that come from right around uh, uh, right around the country and, uh, and attend our weekends and, and fly the airplanes. It's uh, so it's a it's an amazing group of people that that work together to, to make the museum what it is. Cool. No, it's it's definitely got a hell of a great reputation, and uh, we've been meaning to get up there for quite a while. And I understand you've got a uh, a pretty uh, special big event coming up in November. Yeah. Look, in November, um, we got to get the Avalon Air Show out of the way, which we're not quite there yet, but. Uh, <laughs> We got to get the Avalon Air Show going, but in November we're going to uh, have, you know, a, a larger uh, day or air show, or, or you know, we've got the planning that's that's just the in a shell at the moment. The details are, are slowly starting to come together, and um, it's going to be a you know a bigger event, much more like we were doing before with our flying weekend concept, and and it's something we wanted to do because uh, you know it's a great opportunity to bring our you know, to bring our entire crew back together for one, you know, for one one weekend, and really, uh, you know, really get all the airplanes out and invite our friends to bring their airplanes. And you know, we might have the raft; they might decide to bring some airplanes as well. So, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a great time. So that's the third weekend uh, in November. Okay. Well, that's excellent. Well, uh, there's some sounds kicking in. It sounds like a few jets are getting ready to go out, and it's going to get noisy here again. So. Kenny Love, CEO of Tomorrow, thank you very much for taking some time to have a chat. Look, thank you, and uh, we've we've had a good time this weekend. It was nice. I think you've gotten some some uh, time to talk to some of the pilots yes. and some of the other folks that are associated with the museum. And you know, we'll uh, we look forward to seeing everyone. Invite everyone to come to Tomorrow and and, uh, and see the see the museum, see the airplanes, see some of the flying, and and uh, and see something that's really special. Yep, I agree. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Well, there you go, Grant, and uh, Kenny Love, I tell you what, uh, there's a man that's done great things for aviation in this country. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, very, very impressed with where things are going with the Tamora Aviation Museum and uh, what he's been able to do for uh, David Lowy there uh, and all the guys who have worked very hard to uh, 
get all those aircraft together and keep them flying. It's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, mate. And uh, while we're on the topic of warbirds and uh, ex-Royal Australian Air Force uh, aircraft, let's have a talk about Mackie Jets. And joining us on the line now from aviationadvertiser.com.au, our great sponsor here is Ben Morgan. Hi, Ben. G'day, guys. How are you? Yeah, excellent, mate. Now, uh, the Mackie Jet, the MB326H, they disappeared uh, from our skies uh, quite some time ago. In fact, the Roulettes used to operate them. And, uh, you know, frankly, um, as much as I love the Roulettes, they were much more spectacular when they were running Mackie Jets. But, uh, mate, you're in the process of helping to restore one. Yeah, look, uh, we're really lucky. We um, we managed to pick up a fantastic Mackie project uh, from Classic Jets down in Adelaide. Uh, and we purchased the aircraft about uh, 12 months ago. And we relocated the aeroplane to the uh, workshops of the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society, uh, where our ownership syndicate, which is uh, we're a private group of about eight owners, are now working in partnership with the museum there to have the aircraft restored to flying conditions. So a really exciting aeroplane. Yeah, now, uh, interestingly, um, my local uh, return services league down here up until recently were talking about having a couple on display, but I believe that's not going to happen now on static display. How many Mackies are flying? Do we know? Are there any still flying in, in Australia? Yeah, look, there's actually none flying at all. Um, the last aircraft uh, that were flying came out of service, I, th- I believe, towards about 2003, 2004. So since then, there hasn't been a single uh, Mackie flying. Uh, and there are only about 12-odd of these aeroplanes that are actually still remaining in RAAF hands. Um, and we're, I think we've been led to believe that they're probably going to be released sometime in the next two or three years. Uh, so for us, the challenge of getting a Mackie jet back into the sky um, has been compounded by the total lack uh, of uh, parts simply off the shelf. So uh, to date, we've had to do a phenomenal amount of work in uh, working with uh, museums, um, private collections, uh, and individual collectors right across Australia, and also in some cases overseas, uh, to bring together all of the essential items that we're going to need to put this aeroplane back into the air safely. If there's not that many around. You talk about parts. Where, where would be a major source of parts for these aircraft? I believe the ARDU, more commonly known as ARDU, the, the research unit of the RAF would, would have a reasonable stock of them? Parts are actually not easy to come by and you you often find that where where we have to go to get parts is simply to, to seek out private collectors or facilities that have acquired individual components or sub-assemblies through our government disposals process. And it's a really long and it's a detailed process and I think any warbird restorer will tell you this is often an area of a project that can kind of make or break I guess, the success of actually getting it back in the air. That being said, you know, we've been really lucky. We've had a significant number of individuals come forward uh, as a result of this aircraft being restored. And we've just had such a uh, such a hand of assistance in many cases with things being presented and, and, and gifted. So um, this project is uh, is well and truly down the process or down the line. Uh, of being put into the air and we, we really hope that in the next 12 to 24 months we'll see this uh, this aircraft in roulette paint scheme on the airshow circuit. Oh, that'll be magnificent. Are you doing it as a stock aircraft or are you making changes to it as you're going? No, the aircraft will principally be a stock uh, RAAF configuration. Um, as uh, I think has already been mentioned, the aircraft is an MB326H variant and these aircraft were manufactured by the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation later uh, the Hawker de Havilland um, organisation and this aeroplane is from the first batch of 30 so it's aircraft number 25 so this was the 25th wow. aircraft off the production line here in Australia. 
Australia. And this particular aeroplane uh, had served with uh, 2-5 Squadron, which was City of Perth, uh, and had a particular uh, affiliation with that squadron because, of course, it was aircraft number 2-5. But it will be brought back to a roulette paint scheme. It actually did serve during its career as a roulette. Uh, and, in fact, it was at the Richmond um, Bicentenary Air Show uh, as part of the Mackie formation. So there's quite a bit of video uh, available of this particular bird flying routines with the roulettes. But, yeah, it'll be a very exciting product. We expect uh, it'll have uh, the standard tip tanks uh, and we'll also have the uh, smoke system that you would have seen in operation for a, uh, a roulette display uh, machine. Something I've noticed, you know, in, in more recent years when it comes to warbirds is, is the introduction of more and more former military jets taking to the skies in civilian colours. We see it a lot in the States where there's a number of uh, civilian teams. I can think of one that's running around, for instance, uh, with a group of L-39s. It's obviously an expensive undertaking. So, I mean, how do you attract funding to, to undertake these sorts of, uh, sorts of things? <laughs> Difficultly. Um, <laughs> you know, you've got to want to do this stuff. You know, if you, if, I guess if you're asking the question, why do I do this? I, look, I, I, I was one of those pimply-faced teenage boys who was lucky to have a, a grandfather that flew P-40 Kitty Hawks and Wiraways and bits and pieces for the RAAF. So I guess I grew up with a strong connection with aviation. My father is a private pilot. My mother was a private pilot. And aviation has been something that in our household has not just been promoted, but it, it's been there. It's been just part of the everyday fabric. So I can remember going to air shows at Williamtown and open days. And I can remember my grandparents taking us to the Fighter World Museum uh, every Christmas. And of course, they had a Mackie cockpit. So I got to sit in one of these airplanes each year that I went there. Uh, and of course, as you get a little bit older um, and you obviously, you know, in my case, you end up in business and whatnot and you start to develop the financial resources, you, you start to kind of have this desire to, in essence, live the dream. Uh, and for me, that dream is uh, of participating in something that my grandfather was involved in. And that's the whole picture of the RAAF in flying and in service to our country. So for me, it has just a very personal connection. Uh, but for so many people, and I know for other members of the syndicate, we're a very broad picture of individuals. We have some uh, ex-RAAF uh, pilots. We have uh, an accountant. Um, we have um, managers of uh, large industry divisions. And we also have a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer who's just uh, finished his apprenticeship. And uh, we also have someone who flies uh, parachute drop aircraft. So it's it's Warbirds uh, vintage aviation and restoration is not something that uh, I guess attracts only a certain type of person. It's something really that is really a celebration of uh, of historic uh, aviation more than anything else. We we'll really look forward to seeing it get into the skies, mate. Uh, just quickly, um, the other thing that, that I find uh, would probably be a challenge for people doing what you're doing here is getting certification uh, through our good friends uh -huh. at CASA. Has that been a challenge for you? Uh, this aircraft uh, itself falls under the uh, the Warbirds uh, category of uh, regulation and whatnot. So uh, we actually have have not proceeded to the path of yet having the aircraft registered and taking that step, but we are uh, currently doing that right now. And it's look, it is difficult, but as long as you adhere to the processes and the rules and uh, and what's required from the aircraft structural and maintenance side, uh, it shouldn't represent too much of a challenge. Of course, the challenge of being able to fly the aeroplane, not anyone can simply step in and fly these aircraft. Although they're a training aeroplane, they are beyond a Cessna 150 uh, <laughs> and it does take a special type of skill sets. Uh, anyone who has a aptitude for flying shouldn't have too much difficulty. We're very, very lucky though in our case that two of our uh, syndicate members are in fact ex 
RAAF uh, jet pilots. Very and in handy. fact, one of these individuals actually flew this aircraft in service whilst it was at Arju. So we have some brilliant expertise with plenty of experience and uh, we'll be looking forward to those guys working with our pilots who are not necessarily as experienced in ensuring that they can be brought up to appropriate standards. So uh, very exciting stuff. Excellent stuff, mate. Aviationadvertiser.com.au. We want to uh, mention that once again since you've been such a uh, fantastic supporter of our show and we'd uh, certainly encourage uh, all of our uh, listeners to get across there and have a look. And, uh, Ben, we're going to be talking to you in our next episode in some more detail about uh, what you guys do there at Aviation Advertiser and uh, particularly with regard to uh, advocacy for general aviation and uh, so much more. Yes, certainly. And obviously just a quick plug for our uh, associates down at the Historical Aircraft Restoration Society in Wollongong. Anyone who's looking to follow this project or other historic projects or even to get hands-on with the projects, uh, jump onto the website www.hars.org that's hars.org.au and check out the website make contact. Uh, We're always looking for people who want to be involved. Oh absolutely, we'd certainly endorse that. The guys at Hars do a fantastic job in uh, preserving our aviation history. Well thanks very much Ben, Uh, we'll catch you again in episode 62 mate. Uh, Stick around folks, coming up after the break we're going to be going back to Avalon to Talking some more warbirds. Welcome to your flight experience. You're strapped into the pilot seat of a 737 flight simulator. You advance throttles and power down the runway. Cleared for the visual. You're up and away. Flight experience is exhilarating, unique and a whole lot of fun. It's the ultimate gift. So strap in someone you love with a gift voucher today. Your destination, one of 20,000 airports around the world. Call 1-800-737-800 or visit flightexperience.com.au. Flight Experience, the ultimate flying experience. Mile High Flyers promo, take 229. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of Plane Crazy from Down Under about the Mile High Flyers. Mile High Flyers? the hell is that? Is that some sort of crazy sex club? I can't be promoting that crap. Mile High Flyers are an aviation podcast based in the Mile High City. Try it again. Mile High Flyers promo, take 230. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the plain crazy listeners that, about the that, Mile High Flyers. That would be plain crazy down under podcast listeners. Try it again from the top. Mile High Flyers promo, take 231. Cue music, action. Hank here, wanting to tell all the listeners of plain crazy down under about the Mile High Flyers. Kill the music. I think you've had too many beers. You better take a break. I'll see if we can fix this in post. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plaincrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com.
Buster, you fly the media. How are you doing today? Uh, wonderful. It's an excellent day, and I think we've got close to 80,000 people out here to see all the nice an antique aircraft. It certainly looks like a huge crowd. So uh, we were talking to Ian Honnery before, and he was saying he was pretty happy with it. So, uh, yeah, well done. Yeah, no, it's been a very well-organized air show, and uh, we've been looked after well, and the crowd is just wrapped in seeing all, especially our old antique aircraft here today. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, let's focus on a particular one. You primarily fly the Gloucester Media, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. She's a, a sweet old lady. Yeah. Uh, she dates from about 1951, although they were developed at the end of World War II and operational about 1944. So would that be one of the oldest uh, jet aircraft still flying in Australia? I believe actually it's now the oldest jet flying aircraft in the world. Wow, that's yeah. excellent. And of course our model is an F-8, which is a single seater, and it's the only single seater left flying in the world. So how do you transition to that? Uh, well, actually, with my history with the Canadian and Australian Air Force, I flew F-18s, so it was twin jet engine time. And I was able to convince CASA that I was the best candidate to carry out the flying for that. And I went through a training program with the, uh, a Brit who was demonstrating it in England. And he came over after the museum purchased it. And he put me through all the ground school, the emergencies. And he helped a lot with the paperwork for CASA and smoothed my transition onto the aircraft. Okay, that must make things uh, pretty good when you've got someone to tell you uh, how it's going to handle, what to expect. Oh, exactly. So he was the last guy flying it, ran me through everything and showed me you know, what should happen, what to expect. And, but it was really neat because it was a single seater, so there was no two stickers. <laughs> and realistically, it was this is what should happen. And once you knew how to start it, sort of on your own. Okay, so how does she handle? Uh, quite nice, it's a very honest aircraft because it doesn't have any of the computer assisted uh, yeah. gadgetry. So it's just done with straight push rods, etc. Okay. And so when we're flying along, you know, if the ailerons move, I can feel that twitch. And of course, I have a direct link with the fuel, with the throttles. And we try and treat the engines very carefully so we don't overfuel them. So I'm always looking about a maneuver ahead where I'm walking the throttles up or walking them back without using very large slam type maneuvers. Okay, what kind of airspeed are you getting on it? Uh, we're normally doing our displays at about a 250 to 300 knot regime, so just under, you know, between five and 600 kilometers an hour. And as well, the meteor is well known for what's called the blue note, <laughs> and that's the sound of the air rushing over the shell ejector ports. And what I try and do is get coming across at about 600 kilometers an hour, and it really exacerbates that sound and gets it up. Okay, so you, you've, you've found the right speed to really get that tone. Yeah, and a lot of it too can be the sky conditions as we have here today where it's really sunny and not a cloud in the sky. It's very hard to get because the air is very um, rarefied. Yep. But on a nice cool day or if there's a really good cloud cover, you can get a lot of resonance coming down between the clouds. Nice, playing it like pipes. Exactly, yeah, no, it's very unique. Regrettably, when I'm going by that fast though, I don't get to hear it. <laughs> Oh, damn, you got to wait for somebody to play it back for you on the ground. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, watch the video. Now, uh, how much fuel do you carry on board and how long does that give you? Well, the aircraft holds 380 gallons, but we have a minimum fuel of 80 gallons in the Imperial, and it burns about 7 gallons a minute. So realistically, oh. I've got about 30 minutes of low-level flying time before I actually have to have that aircraft back on the ground. Well, that's not a lot of time. No, and especially when we're doing transits, we do try and get the aircraft up to altitude where the jet engines operate better, more fuel efficient, and of course, go further. But low-level, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of a, an airborne fuel emergency as soon as you take off. <laughs> So it's sort of like the, uh, the the F-16 can trace its history straight back, you know, take off on bingo. Exactly, yeah, yeah. no, 
know. But you know, the numbers are there for our own safety, and we never actually fly to that. We always give ourselves a good margin because you'd really hate to stuff something up and oh, lose yeah. an historic and invaluable aircraft because you just cannot put a price on what that's worth. No, exactly. And uh, Simo was saying the other day about the Sabre, he said it's like juggling a Ming vase. Exactly, you know. Yeah. And you know, I feel very honored in that, you know, the uh, responsibility of flying it and demonstrating it is given to me. Yeah. And I recognize that. And we try and demonstrate it, uh, showing the attributes of the aircraft to the public, you know, so the graceful lines. We don't do anything abrupt with it. You know, so it's just a nice flowing display. And hopefully the crowd appreciate that. And by doing that, we should be able to keep it going for the next 20 to 25 years. Oh, that's excellent. Before it has to finally become a static. Regrettably, you know, it'll ultimately come to that. Uh, but hopefully that is well after when I hang up my spurs from flying. <laughs> cool. Well, Buster, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you also for uh, keeping this bird flying. Uh, it's a pleasure. And we look forward to demonstrating at many more air shows for the public in the future. Gus Lirard, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. Uh, thank you. Now, Gus, you're flying a Hawker Sea Fury today. Uh, that's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, aircraft? Uh, has it always been in the air, or was there a restoration involved? Uh, this one's been restored twice. It was a, it's an ex-Royal uh, Navy Baghdad Air Force uh, Sea Fury, or yep. Sea Fury then Fury, and then it was recovered and restored initially in Australia in the 60s and yep. operated uh, out of Melbourne for some years. And then it uh, belonged to the old flying machine company in the United Kingdom mm -hmm. uh, for a number of years, and I, event I purchased it in South Africa a, a couple of years back. And uh, you just bought it straight in, in a crate and reassembled it, and away you went? It was in flying condition when we bought it. Uh, we completely dis disassembled it, uh, shipped it to Australia, and we did a full systems restoration when we got it back to Australia. So is it currently a Sea Fury or a Fury? Uh, that's a good question. We believe it's a Fury, but there were a number of ex-Royal Navy Sea Furies supplied to the, the Baghdad, the, the Iraq Air Force, so we okay. can't be absolutely sure about that. Uh, was this one being worked on at Precision Aeroparts in Wangaratta? Yes, Precision Aerospace Productions in Wangaratta did, did all the restoration work and okay. did a bunch of airframe repair work, plus all the completely rebuilt all the systems on it. And I believe it was just about coming out of, the, out of their shed about in a year, year and a half ago? Uh, about six months ago. Okay. Yeah. Okay, because yeah, I was uh, there about a year and a half ago, year, a couple of Aprils back, and there was a, uh, a Blue Fury in there being restored. Yeah, that was it. It was it was very close then, but at the last minute, there's always uh, paperwork and a few other holdups, and we had a few with this. Anyway, we eventually got it airborne a few months back. Okay, it's the usual thing. The last 10% takes 90% of the time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's how it was. So, Gus, can you tell me a little bit about your flying background? I couldn't afford to learn to fly, so I took the easy way and joined the Air Force okay. and uh, flew Mirages and Hornets in the Air Force. And I'm an airline pilot now for an Asian airline flying Boeing 747. Taking all that you've learnt and uh, converting it to the Fury, uh, what's, it, what's it like in terms of power and responsiveness? How, how careful do you have to be when you're flying it? Uh, the Fury's a very straightforward aircraft to fly. It's very high performance, uh, obviously one of the, the few highest performance piston fighters ever, but it's um, a very straightforward systems on it and it's a, it's a simple straight aircraft for the pilot to operate. It's just big and it's, as you said, it's very high performance. So yeah. you need to be all over that. Yeah, so you've got to watch out where if you put power into it, you don't just slam it, you ease it in? Yeah, as with any aircraft, it's, it's okay. just that what, what you get is uh, the, the performance, you need to be thinking a bit further ahead okay. uh, for everything you're doing if you're comparing it to one of the earlier generation fighters. So what kind of numbers are you getting out of it in terms of uh, what airspeed are you doing, what's your climb rates, things like that? Uh, it'll climb at a bit over four and a half thousand feet a minute on takeoff, and uh, 
don't look at the fuel flow gauge on takeoff because it indicates 300 gallons an hour, and that's Imperial gallons. Um, but and cross-country cruise, uh, max range minimum fuel, 65 gallons an hour, cruising at 220 knots indicated. So it gets um, it gets very quickly, but uh, not very far. Yeah, so if you're not paying for the fuel, like you could you could cruise at 300 knots indicated cross country, but um, <laughs> le- these these days 220 is a bit more environmentally friendly. A bit more wallet friendly. Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, so, what kind of uh, shows do you take it to? Uh, this is the first show I've taken it to. So we restored it and flown it a few times, done some photo shoots, and I've I've been doing some local flying uh, in it. But this is the first show we bought it to. Well, it's a beautiful aircraft. Thank you for bringing it along. It's it's wonderful to see a Fury down here again. My pleasure. And thanks to Buster and to Gus for uh, making time to speak to us back there at Avalon. Uh, Grant, it's hard to believe it's already been about a month since we were down there. I know. It seems like it was only the other day that we were totally zonked out from running all over the place and having a blast. Yeah. But, you know, all good things come to an end and now it's time to get ready for the next one. That would be the next air show that we're going to, not necessarily the next Avalon. We've got more stuff coming up way before 2013. Absolutely. In fact, Grant, we should uh, announce here that we're uh, planning to head up to NatFly. That's right. We're going to be at NatFly up at tomorrow, this uh, Easter. We're not going to be there every day we're only going up for a couple of days just to make the most of uh, catching up with everyone and seeing what's on display there i'm looking forward to uh, meeting up with a couple of uh, aircraft manufacturers and distributors uh, so check out what the latest is that they've got and uh, we're hoping to catch up with some old friends and make some new ones while we're there absolutely in fact uh, grant i'm thinking of uh, throwing together our semi-portable kit here and uh, we may even try and record an episode of the show while we're up there oh why not mm, i like putting pressure on us grant you know it's what i do best I know, I know. David keeps saying it's me who puts pressure on him to get information out, but really it's you putting pressure on me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, folks, uh, write into us, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. Let us know if you're going to be up at NatFly and we'll uh, we'll try and catch up with some of you and it'd be great to meet you. We met uh, many, many listeners at uh, Avalon, so it'd be great to meet some more of you up there at NatFly. Uh, Who knows? We may even have a couple of hats with us. Yeah, who who knows? Now, Grant, uh, speaking of a man who's always under pressure... Oh, yeah... Normally it's midnight, today it's midday. There you go, absolutely. I thought we'd have him confused. I thought he wouldn't know that we were recording and wouldn't know to bring in the listener mail, but no, he's he's pretty super, this postman. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a little bit of listener mail here. We'll just read out one this week from our good friend, speaking of someone that we met at Avalon, and that was our listener, Ed Stubbs. Hey, Ed. Hey, Ed. Now, Ed, of course, lives across there in Perth. He works at Perth Airport, and uh, boy, he's been busy, Grant, and, uh, you know, doing something rather crazy, jumping out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft. What, on his Tiger flight? back to Perth. Yeah, yes, he made it back on a... He says he starts off here saying he made it back uh, to Perth on Tiger Airways. So, uh, <laughs> yes, that's right, studio audience. I wonder how many days he had to wait. <laughs> I don't know, but he must, he, he's definitely a danger freak. I thought I was doing pretty well going to and from Sydney, but that's only an hour. He went coast to coast. Absolutely. Oh, well, well done there, Tiger Airways. And, uh, you know, well, there you go. Actually, we're not hearing so many horror stories about them lately, so either the media is getting tired of it or uh, hopefully better still have actually picked up their game. Uh, I think it's probably more the latter, but, uh, yeah, maybe the media is distracted. They've got uh, Qantas to pick on at the moment. So uh, the other thing we wanted to point out here, uh, he said uh, that we asked him to keep us posted on his progress. We're always keen to hear about how our listeners are going, particularly with their flying training. Now, uh, Ed has uh, got his eyes uh, focused firmly on getting his commercial pilot's licence, and uh, as he told us when we spoke to him at Avalon, uh, with a uh, you know, bit of a sharp eye on perhaps getting into the Air Force as well, he uh, tells us here in this email that he's uh, very pleased to have finally passed his night VFR rating. That's right. He's done his night VFR. He's done some of his uh, commercial pilot theory exams, and all that on top of having his first ever tandem skydive. So, 
I think Ed's definitely got the aviation bug. Yeah, absolutely. So well, that's good. And uh, for our American listeners who are wondering what on earth is a night VFA rating, yes, here in Australia, it's a separate rating. Yeah, I've got to say I'm kind of glad it is because uh, it takes a bit of effort to do a night VFR and uh, it, you can very easily wind up in a lot of trouble if you haven't done it for a while and you think you know what you're doing. But, uh, you know, eh, that's sure to generate some <coughs> hate mail against me. Absolutely. But- I might send you some. You know, perhaps uh, this is why it's built into the general syllabus in the US for uh, private pilot training. But, hey, that's just my opinion. Yeah, well, here we go. Another thing we disagree on. What the heck? <laughs> but at least one thing we do agree on, congratulations to Ed Stubbs. Well done, mate. Yes, absolutely. Well done, Ed. And, uh, yes, thank you, studio audience. Hey. Hey, I thought you, I didn't realize you'd bought them in early, but uh, what the heck? That leads us straight on to shout outs. Yep. Okay, Grant. So into shout outs. Now, uh, you may remember uh, quite a number of episodes back we uh, spoke. In fact, we've done it a couple of times. We've spoken to these two gentlemen, Ken Evers and Tim Price, uh, doing the Millions Against Malaria flight. Now, Grant, uh, they took a uh, Gips Aero GA8 turbo air van right around the world. And uh, Grant, they've uh, picked up some well-deserved recognition. That's right, mate. They certainly have. They've uh, both received the uh, Royal Federation of Aero Clubs of Australia's Des Kelly Special Achievement Award. So uh, that's a pretty high honour to receive that. And they've also been recognised by the Parisian Federation Aeronautique Internationale, the FAI, who have uh, bestowed upon them the Circumnavigator Badge. So congratulations for that, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, they've also picked up some recognition uh, for the aircraft itself. That's uh, VH Bravo Yankee India uh, grant for uh, doing the, uh, I believe it's called the Earth Rounders. Uh, That's correct. Organization. So uh, they're an organization that uh, recognizes uh, single engine aircraft that uh, fly around the world. So uh, yeah, good to see that they're picking up some well-deserved recognition for that flight. It was a huge undertaking. And in fact, we know that they uh, they struggled towards the end there to get enough funding to even get it off the ground. So it's, it's a mighty effort to Ken and Tim. And uh, Grant, you know, it's high time we had them back on the show for a chat, I think. I think so, just to see where everything's at, in addition to acknowledging their uh, recognition here, but uh, also find out how things are going in the battle against malaria and because they were very big on raising funds to, and awareness. So see where that's at for them. Absolutely. Now, Grant, uh, let's move on to uh, Matt from New Street Films, a uh, friend of yours, now a friend of the show. And, um, well, you know, I actually feel sorry for Matt. He's been taking photos of us. That's right, mate. He's uh, He's been taking photos of us a couple of times. Uh, we needed to get the photo shoot done recently to supply the guys at Aviation Advertiser to put on their site. And poor Matt, uh, he didn't just allocate uh, space in his studio to do it. He actually took the photos as well and had to try and work with us and tell us how to position and so on. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, now that we've got these uh, new funky PCDU shirts, we had to go back and do it all over again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, big shout-outs to Maddie. Thanks, mate. Uh, very much appreciate his help, both with uh, using the new Street Film Studio and uh, getting the photos taken. Now, uh, talking about some listeners that uh, are constantly supporting the show, uh, we want to do a bit of a shout-out here to Andrew Tusis. Andrew's always uh, out there promoting our show and uh, you know uh, retweeting stuff of ours that we put up and sending us suggestions and all that sort of stuff. And uh, really cool, he's actually put us in touch with a gentleman by the name of Ben Merkinoff. We're going to be speaking to Ben actually in the next episode. And uh, Ben's got a really fascinating story to tell uh, regarding uh, flying a, a Boeing Stearman uh, from one side of the country to the other and uh, some other really interesting activities that uh, he's been involved in with that aircraft. So I uh, uh, really appreciate that, Andrew. We, we were actually going to feature Ben in this episode, but unfortunately Ben's been very, very busy with other media commitments. But uh, we've uh, we've made a time for next week uh, as we record this one, so we're really looking forward to speaking to him. So uh, just a shout-out to you, mate, for uh, putting us in touch. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Really appreciate that, mate. And thanks also. 
also to a longtime supporter of us on Facebook. And I'm sorry, I know I'm going to get your name wrong, but uh, I believe it's Yat Fai Leong, uh, a gentleman who has been uh, very quick to uh, say what he does and doesn't like on our Facebook page. Mostly he likes it. And uh, yeah, really appreciate his help out there and um, helping to promote us via Facebook. So uh, my apologies for no doubt butchering your name. One day you're going to have to send us an audio recording so uh, we can get your name correct. Absolutely, Grant. He actually lives over in Taiwan, as far as I can tell. And um, it's interesting when we uh, we put a post up on Facebook, he is generally the first person in probably 90% of the cases to click the like button on whatever our posts are. So uh, it's great to have listeners across there, particularly in, in a place like Taiwan. And we're assuming that uh, English is probably not his first language. So uh, yeah, great. And we really appreciate your support for the show. We've been talking for a long time that we should do a shout out to you and uh, we apologize that it's taken so long. But uh, yeah, we, we're glad you're enjoying the show, mate. And uh, long may it continue. And also someone who's been around for quite a while and uh, helping us out. And in fact, came down to interview us way back when we were very early days. And that's Eric, aka Irk from Channel Irk. So mate, thanks very much for all your support that you've given us over time. Yeah, and you know, we, we don't give enough uh, credit to, to Irk now. Uh, that's at channelirk.com. And uh, we, we wanted to mention here too that uh, he's put out a book. He self-published a book called A Moment in Time. Now, I've not uh, had a chance yet to read the book, but uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps Eric, if you can uh, write down and tell us about how that's going, and uh, we'd be happy to promote it here for you, mate. But uh, yeah, we, we know that uh, he's always following our uh, Twitter stream in particular and uh, is, is quite often sending us through story ideas. We know we can't always use all of them, but uh, I can tell you, for instance, when the uh, the Qantas A380 incident happened, uh, the very first person to make me aware of that was uh, was Eric. So we really appreciate the support that you give to the show, mate. Indeed. And he is actually uh, doing an audio. He is releasing it as audio. And, mate, there's one little thing that you, should, you didn't mention about Eric. He's a train driver too. Yeah, what a great guy. And he's also mm-hmm. a member of the uh, the fire service up there, which is something I had in common with him up until recently. I'm no longer a firefighter, but uh, there you go. Oh, uh, yes. A moment, a a moment silence. Yes, yes. Oh, well. I gave them eight years, Grant. I think that's enough. There you go. Okay, mate. So that's it for shout-outs for this week. Now, we've got a couple of other, other things we need to talk about. Uh, the first thing is that uh, you heard us talking to uh, Egon Ma there, uh, the pilot from the Russian roulettes uh, team there. Now, actually, uh, one of the other things they allowed us to do while they were there is uh, record their uh, rather comical debriefing session that they had afterwards. Now, uh, Grant, it was uh, quite interesting. I love the way they were getting into their uh, very well-practiced uh, Russian accent. <laughs> that was great. They were doing very well. We were actually uh, originally going to make that uh, debrief basically an end of show clip in place of the blooper reel. However, we have generated quite a number of rather comical bloopers, so I have put together a blooper mm. reel. What uh, we've decided to do is instead uh, make that uh, available for download of the extras uh, section on our website, playingcrazydownunder.com. Click on the extras tab and it goes for about uh, three or four minutes, so uh, quite comical. So uh, well, with that said, Grant, uh, we want to uh, finish the show on a, uh, on a rather sad note. Most of you will uh, be aware that we produce a segment uh, every uh, second week for our uh, friends over at uh, Flight Time Radio. That's uh, Milford and Charlie. Well, um, we've uh, we've just heard in the last uh, 24 hours or so that unfortunately uh, Milford's wife, Barbara, has uh, passed away. So uh, that's uh, very, very sad news. And Milford, uh, we just wanted to say, mate, how sorry we are to hear that. And uh, we wanted to pass on our, our best wishes to you and, uh, of course, our sincere condolences. Uh, on behalf of Grant and myself and uh, also on behalf of the, uh, the listeners of this show, Grant, uh, yeah, I was aware that uh, Milford's wife was not well but I, uh, I had no idea that uh, she was uh, that unwell. Yeah, mate, it uh, was a bit of a surprise for me. I hadn't actually been keeping up with all the news. And uh, yeah, so I, I knew that uh, he had been having a family illness issue that had gotten in the way of a couple of planned outings that had from the Flight Time radio show. 
But uh, yeah, this is this is pretty big news, and uh, condolences, mate. All the best from us over here. Okay, Grant. Well, on that uh, on that sad note, uh, we'll call that an end to the show this week. Uh, as always, uh, thanks very much for listening, folks. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, episode sixty-two of Playing Crazy Down Under is already half completed, which is amazing uh, by my uh, total lack of organisational <laughs> standards. Uh, in the next episode, of course, as we mentioned earlier, we'll be talking to uh, Ben Morgan again from Aviation Advertiser, uh, and we've got uh, quite an interesting uh, discussion there about uh, some of the. Uh, perhaps uh, less than positive things that are happening in GA and uh, how he's planning to uh, tackle that and uh, particularly with regard to advocating for GA and RA. Also, as we mentioned, we'll be talking to Ben Merkinoff and Grant. We're also going to be talking about uh, CASA's new on-track service. Uh, So that's all coming up in episode 62, a week or two from now. So that's it from me and that's it from him. Just remember, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thank you very much. <laughs> You sound like my father-in-law. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but then you look at how old he is anyway. <laughs> no, actually, just, no, we can't do that. Some good interviews. Okay. <laughs> nice try, buddy. Damn it. So some good interviews. And I'll say, yes, mate. And uh, then after that, we've got some uh, more uh, Avalon uh, Warbirds. Yeah. Okay, we are live. <coughs> I'm going to cough again. <laughs> oh, We're alive. <laughs> Oops, stop. <laughs> and today Cigarettes on Cough Crazy Down Under. They're good for you. <laughs> the Australian Association of Cigarette Appreciation Group would like you to listen to a cough from their medicine. Yes, that's, that, that's the Anthony Simmons chapter. That's it. Say no to cigars. <laughs> oh, very well, mate. Now uh, let's. Foul. What? Oh, sorry. It slipped down. I just said not too foul. <laughs> Oh, sorry. In honor, in, in honor of a classic. Of, a classic. Matt, 
Did I say that out loud? <laughs> I use it all the time when people ask how am I going. I'm like, not too foul, and they just look at you like, okay. Right. But anyhow. Come on, mate. I'm getting tired. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So go. Uh, that's R-G-U, by the way. What did I say? A-D-R-U. It's A-R-D-U. Yeah. A-R-D-U. Yeah. You watch me put that in in post. Can you do that? Yeah, I can. You watch. Oh, right. oh he's brilliant like that. <laughs> wow. Let me just say, I believe the ARDU space. And go, it's go. most commonly called ARDU. Yeah. More commonly known as ARDU. Yep. Space. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, uh,